How's everybody doing? This morning as I went to my closet, I, I realized that it's not uh, Jersey Day. However, um, there was nothing in my closet that felt quite as appropriate. So we've experienced a ton this week, and I, I hope that we will uh, gain the Lord's perspective on all of it uh, as we gather here. So this morning we are in our series of people becoming, and today we were scheduled to look at the triumphal entry of Jesus um, and really imagine uh, going back as they laid palm fronds and jackets at his feet, that scenario, what that looked like, as they screamed out basically one word, Hosanna, which means save now. They, they, I want to say the reason that that passage is incredibly important for them and for us today is this, because as they screamed Hosanna, as they welcomed him in, they'd be mourning as they put him in the grave at the end of the week, because they did not have God's perspective on the matter. They had only what was directly in front of them. They could see what was right in front of them, and that was their perspective. They could not see his larger perspective. They were caught in the weeds and couldn't see the forest. And they, like the, the Israelites during the Exodus, who were walked out of, of bondage to the Egyptians, walked literally out of slavery, didn't have God's perspective on the matter, because every time that he'd provide, they complained. During the... The Exodus during the time of Jesus, during where we're going to look today in 2 Kings 6, and during our time now, my, my question to his church is, do we have God's perspective on the matter? We have called this series of people becoming because I believe, much like at 1 o'clock when I heard debris or hail hit my house louder than I ever have, knowing that that wind was different, and I got up and I screamed, get up, and we sat in the in the crawl space, and my wife was like, I was in a deep sleep, I don't even know how I got up. I was like, because I was yelling at you, you know. As I sat there, I believe that not only did I physically awake, but I think God has intended that his church come awake during this time. Amen. And so this morning, the psalmist says it like this, I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and of earth. Indeed, he who watches over Israel while I was asleep as a tornado ravaged our city. It says this, that he neither sleeps nor slumbers. Let me say that again. He who watches over Israel, and we are the new covenant, the new Israel, will neither sleep nor slumber. This morning, as we turn to 2 Corinthians, I mean, sorry, 2 Kings 6, I, I believe that God has a word for us this morning to give us his perspective on the entire matter. So, so you understand where we are. In 2 Kings 6, we're going to begin in verse 8. The, the picture is this, and we're going to work through this piece by piece just so you kind of understand where we're coming from. The context is that Israel, throughout all the Old Testament, has continued to be slaves or besieged by someone else because of their own infidelity to the Lord. They continually are ravaged and taken hold of by others. In this passage specifically, you, if you have the NIV, it's going to say Aram. And if you have another translation, it's going to say Assyria or Syria because this is modern-day Syria, an enemy of Israel during this time. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, so it's going to say Aram or the Aramaeans. 
And what they're doing is they're coming against Israel and they're seeking to cut off their food supply. Besieging means that you perimeter around your enemy and you literally cut off all food in and out. You cut off any supplies that can get to your enemy, forcing them to famine, forcing them to turn to you, and they can become your servants because you, they become completely dependent upon you. That's what's taking place here. Aram, or Syria, has come against Israel and seeks to besiege them. The king of Aram, it says in verse 8, Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The reason that it says in such and such a place is to show us that he is actually seeking to surround them, thus the besieging that I just explained. The man of God, or Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, beware of the passing of this place because the Arameans are there and they seek to go down. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by Elisha or the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king of Israel so that he was on guard in such places. Stop. So I want to encourage you. There's a, there's a download that Elisha, the prophet of God, who serves as intermediary between the people of God and God himself, and he is letting them know exactly what the king of Aram or the king of Syria intends against them. And he is giving him a supernatural word, and he's letting the king of Israel know. This is not because he's in agreement with the monarchs of Israel who are godless at this point and at this point have continued uh, to be put under siege because of their infidelity. Just like we talked about, it was a repetitious pattern for them. God would provide, miraculously give, and they'd complain. They would, a God would take them through the Red Sea and they'd build yet a calf that they could worship. So here's, this is the tendency of the people of Israel in this time. So it's not that the man of God agrees with the monarchs of Israel. He just believes that it's better served the people of God than be slaves to Assyria at this point. So he's giving the king of Israel exactly what God gives him, which are the intentions and the plans of King Aram, or the king of Aram. And it says in verse 11, this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? Who's the traitor? Who in my camp keeps telling him our plans? None of us, says uh, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. What that means is this. They have been made aware supernaturally that Elisha is a prophet of God being told exactly by God what, they, what he intends to do in his bedroom. That means in his secret place, in a place where he would not even tell anyone else. In his own place, in private meetings, within his own head, within his own person, before he gives it to the officers, Elisha's given it away to the king. Hello? Because God's given it to him. This is... Can you imagine for a lost people coming against an enemy of the people of God, for them to be able to rectify in their minds, consciously say, there's a man amongst them who knows exactly what you're going to do because their God tells him. Can you imagine the witness in this? So, reading on. It says, none of us but Elisha speaks the words that you intend in your bedroom. Verse 13, go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men to capture him. The report came back that he 
meaning Elisha, Elisha is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. You need to understand what's going on here. They go by night so they can't be seen. But chariots and horses were the most sophisticated military equipment and vehicle of that time. And it says he sent a strong force. That means he sent the strongest of his army to descend and encapsulate, like to, to surround Elisha and his servants. The people of, that are of God that are with Elisha are surrounded by the best the Assyrian armies have. They're surrounded by the most sophisticated uh, military vehicle, and they're surrounded by the best of the best in the army. He wants Elisha not just captured, he wants him taken out. They send to kill the man who is this direct download so that the king of Israel will not know their plans. They can besiege Israel and take them into bondage as their own slaves. So if I can cut off the source, we can be victorious. So it says that they surrounded the city. Verse 15. Now, every prophet traveled with servants. Every, just like you see in, in the days of Jesus, you have disciples. Everyone had disciples. And there was, a, there was servants that traveled with Elisha. It says, as the, man, as the servant of the man of God, or the servant of Elisha, got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city and he said, oh, my Lord, what shall we do, the servant asked. If I've been asked that question, if I've seen that question in Scripture this week, I've been asked that question one time, I've been asked it a million times this week, because I walked up on a house that had nothing standing left but a bathroom. Everyone is asking, what shall we do? What do we do now? Like, look around, what do we do? I took my family in on the very first day on Monday, or sorry, Tuesday morning, early, after everything had hit. And i got to remind us, like, I want, I want you to think on this. Like, we began this series last week of people becoming. Like, the church developing. And I challenged us in that time to not only trust the Lord from Mark 7, but to anticipate looking at Mark 11 this week and the entrance of Jesus in his final week on the planet, which I just touched on. I'm going to bypass that, kind of pseudo-sidestep it for this message today because I think the Lord has given us a word. And here's what I want to say. I challenged us last Sunday from this very pulpit to stop complaining for 40 days. And within less than 48 hours. Hello? In less than 48 hours, much of our city is in rubble. And I walked up on this man and I looked at him who had nothing left. And he told me of how he, he had gathered his wife, gotten under the stairs, and he covered her as the, the house came down. He took on tons of hits from brick and debris. And then he told me that he was walking through his yard at this time. <laughs> and he'd stepped on an, three different nails. And his wife had stepped on nails just looking for a couple things. I said, he, go, he looked at me and goes, can you help me? What do you say? Absolutely. Ab abso I would be honored to help you. So we send a team, my own kids, like six or seven people from our church walk straight in this guy's backyard. He said, I'm looking for two things. I'm looking for my wallet. 
said, I don't care about any memorabilia, no, no family photos, none of that. I just want to find my wallet. I found the pants that the wallet was in. It was up in this tree right here, but I can't find my wallet. I'm thinking your wallet might be over Cookville right now. I don't know. But we will look for this wallet, and I begged God, can we find this wallet just to inspire this man to offer him hope? Please, God, let us find this wallet. Never found that wallet. So that's the bad news. What's the second thing you're looking for? I got a loaded gun out here. And I need to find it before the wrong person does. I was praying, God, let an adult find this gun. Minutes later, one of our own, an adult, holds it up. I found the gun. Before a kid, before someone who doesn't need to have that in their hands has it, and is able to give it back to the owner to give him that much peace of mind. So that's, that's the good news at least to inspire him that much. But he has a question in his eyes, and it's the very question that Elisha asks as he stands before an army that will certainly take them by siege, the strongest of Syria's army. What do we do now? We are done for. What do we do? Then Elisha prays. In verse 16, he turns to him, the servant, he says three words, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those that are with them. Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. The Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. Now, I just told you the most sophisticated thing that they had militarily was horses and chariots. But can you imagine what Elisha's servant does when his eyes are open spiritually to the reality of things around him? Remember, we don't battle flesh and blood, but we battle the principalities of the dark, right? That there's a spiritual battle continually around us. And when this guy's eyes are open to this reality and he sees not only horses and chariots, but more in number than the Assyrian army before them. And they're all ablaze with the spirit of heaven surrounding this army. Can you imagine how much hope filled Elisha's servant? He says, do not be afraid. That's easy for you to say, God, open his eyes, boom. Whoa, okay, we're good. You hear what I'm saying? In Dothan, there's not even hills. I believe what it's referring to is that he is standing on a hill and surrounding this city are the armies of heaven, not to take out the Assyrian army. That's not the intent of God, and that's not even the plan here. This army from heaven, set ablaze by the very Spirit of God, came in full force. The best that heaven had to offer comes against the best that Assyria has to offer for one reason. To protect God's people. To protect Elisha, his servant, and the people of Israel. He's not going to let Syria or Aram take him down. First point. We have to rest in God's perspective. He prayed that he would open the eyes of his servant. I'm going to pray, church, that we would have our eyes opened this morning. I believe that 
at one in the morning when I was asleep and debris hit my house so, so hard that I got up and said, I know that's not normal because I didn't even know a tornado was coming. And I, I believe more than just a physical awakening took place. And I believe that is for us as well. I believe that God is asking for our eyes to be open to the reality of this moment. And that we are continually not battling against flesh and blood. But as people turn and they ask, what do we do now? Why has this happened? The church has a response. Both in word and in deed. And it's found in the way that we love. I've been asked another question many times this week. And that question is this, why has God allowed this to happen? Here's the the answer that I have for this. We're going to talk about it a little bit more in the sermon, but I'm just going to give it to you right now. I believe is create opportunity. I believe it's opportunity for his church. Because here's why. My heart breaks for anyone who lost their life during this this tragedy or lost a loved one during this tragedy. But how many of you are grateful that there's breath in you? What are you going to do with that breath? What will you do with the hands and feet that God has allowed you to have and the heart that is still within you? Not physically, but does your heart at your soul reflect his? Because you look and you see a people who right now walk around in a haze, which we're going to talk about in a moment, and they're looking for a strong voice. They're looking for solid answers that they can follow. And I believe that God has given us those answers. And I believe that God has given us hope and love and joy that can extend from his people to them in a time when they otherwise have been left without. The reason I believe there's opportunity is this. Someone said it this week, and I think it's true, that great tragedy serves as a great equalizer. During the time of the, of the Exodus, the people of God kept turning their back on, on God because they became self-reliant. During the time of Jesus, they kept turning their back and they just wanted a king to free them right now from Roman rule. Why? Because they were self-reliant. I believe that we serve in a time that has decidedly become so secular that we, they have decided that there is no God. And we'll take care of it ourselves. You know what's amazing about what my friend who I just told you about with just the bathroom standing said to me? When he lost everything, he said, I'm just grateful that my wife and I are alive. It's incredibly sobering when everything that you have And everything that you have built by your own hands that you have used, even in opposition to God, is standing before you in rubble. How quickly you find out what's really important in life. Hello? And so I believe that the church has been awakened to give answers because we have a people who are right now blind and in a haze and they're seeking for such. Let me read on. It says this. But as the enemy, in verse 18, came down toward him. See, Assyria, Aramea, Syria, whatever you want to say here, they cannot see the horses and chariots of fire surrounding them. They don't see that. They don't know. So they believe that before them is the man they seek to take out, and they believe that they can. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, 
as Elisha had asked. Elisha told him, this is not the road. This is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. Stop. Elisha prays, open his eyes, open the people of God's eyes, that they might see there are more with us than those against us. We are more than conquerors. Hello, Romans 8, that we are more than conquerors. Who can assemble against us? Because we approach life not for victory, but from victory. Let them see that, God. And then for the spiritually blind, he goes, darken their eyes. Make them blind. As they charge their enemy seeking to capture and kill Elisha, the one who's the conduit to the kingdom of Israel and the key to them overthrowing Israel, all of a sudden, this is not like a total blindness that they're stricken with in the physical. They're struck, they're struck with this like ability to kind of see and make out shapes and make out people, but they can't see with clarity. Otherwise, they would not know where or how to follow or who to follow. So they can see and make out images, but they cannot make distinction. And they're also in a spiritual haze. They're placed into a spiritual haze that gives Elisha dominance in their life and a voice to follow. So here's the second point. He says, shut their eyes, so the, uh, the, shut the eyes of those who oppose the people of God or your plan. The people of God have to have resolve in God's plan. First, we have to be able to rest in God's perspective. Second, we have to be resolute in God's plan. F.B. Morgan said it like this. He's the famous British pastor. He said, faith is never imagining re- unreal things. Faith is the grip of things which cannot be demonstrated to the senses, but are very real. As real as those chariots of horses that were on fire that day, and they actually stood there. Truth is, I believe that the people of, of, of Assyria were stricken with blindness, much like the people of our day who are shell-shocked, from West Nashville all the way to Cookville are walking around not sure what has happened and not sure how to move forward because their self-reliance and their own dependency has been taken to the ground. And now they have the ability to seek answers. They may not know exactly how to find them, but right here, Elisha, the man of God, the one who speaks to them and speaks for God, is a strong voice and a strong indicator of who to follow and what to follow. Just as much as I believe today, if we'll take his perspective, the church of Jesus, with his message of hope, joy, and love, can be a strong message and a strong voice and a strong example of who and how to follow right now for those who need hope. The darkened were even more darkened as Elisha prayed, close their eyes. And I just love this this part in verse 19. It says, that they, it says that this is not the road, this is not the city. I will lead you to the man that you're looking for. Who was the man that they were looking for? Who's the conduit to the king of Israel? The one speaking to them, Elisha. So you can know that they're so deceived. Things are so hazy for them. In their eyes physically and in their minds spiritually. 
that they don't even know the man they want to capture is the one talking to them. So Elisha just looks at them and says, these aren't the droids you're looking for. <laughs> and moves them to believe and trust and to follow. Charles Spurgeon said it like this in his book, Three Sights Worth Seeing. That you've not perceived spiritual things is true. But there's no proof that there are none to perceive. Speaking on this very passage, he said, The whole case is like that of the Irishman who tried to upset evidence by non-evidence. Four witnesses saw him commit a murder. He pleaded that he was not guilty. He wished to establish his innocence by producing 40 persons who did not see him do it. Of what use would that have been? So if 40 people declare that there is no power in the Holy Ghost going with the word, this only proves that 40 people who do not know what the others who've already experienced do. Church, have you experienced the power of God? How many of you are grateful that today you have breath when the rest of our city lays in ravage? How many of you are grateful that you were able to step out like my friend when he said, everything else can go, I just need my wife? How many of you are also grateful that you were awakened well before that period to the darkness of this world and you were brought into the light by the work and the love of Jesus pursuing you and coming after you? Hello? 1 Peter 2 says it like this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into wonderful light. The reason that we are moving beyond complaining for 40 days, seeking to take opportunity to praise him, is because we are God's plan. Jesus came, and he is coming again. And in the meantime, we, the church, are his plan. And this church needs to be able to sing praises of the hope and the faith and the love and the joy that we have in him to a people who right now are spiritually blind and walking around in a haze. Right now, if, if no other time, I hope that the church has been awakened to the fact that maybe, just maybe, prior to this tragedy, and I hate that it takes tragedy. But maybe prior to this tragedy, we walked around a little bit just like our lost friends and our lost neighbors. Instead of living in the second greatest commandment, focused on others' people's needs before our own and loving them like Jesus did, maybe we had gotten just a little bit focused on our own world as well. And maybe we had just put our eyes on what was immediately in front of us, just kind of protecting our own entity, not really concerned as much around the, about the world around us. Hello? But today, you are here, and breath is in you. Will you continue to just protect your entity, or will you look around the world, uh, at the world around you who is darkened and need of spiritual leading and guidance, and they need more than just people who will you know, help them up by pulling up the bootstraps. They need a people motivated by the gospel and the love of Jesus, who will love them in deed and in word. Reading on. Because where Elisha leads these people is awesome. Elisha leads them people 
straight into Samaria, straight into the place of the king of Israel, straight into the camp of the enemy. It says, after they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open their eyes so they may see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and they recognized that they were in Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, should I kill them, my father? Should I kill them? Elisha answered, do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill men you've captured with your own sword or bow? Rather, set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master so that the bands of Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Point three. We have to love as Jesus practiced. Let your people, though they stand in opposition to God, the very people who are your enemy, like Matthew 5, when Jesus said, love your enemy. Don't just love those who are like you, love those who are against you. These people were coming to besiege Israel, cut off their food supply that they would be in famine. And what does Elijah say? What's Elisha say? Here's the answer. Feed them. Though they want to take your food supply, give it to them. Though they want to cut off your food supply, don't return evil for evil, return evil for good. Throw them not just bread and water, but a feast. Don't kill them. Don't incarcerate them. Don't take away their food supply and turn them into your slaves. Feed them and send them away. Love them selflessly, as selflessly as Jesus loved you. And took your punishment that was well-deserved that you might live and you might live in peace and in joy. The reason that the big the story of Jesus coming and his triumphal entry is so important is because his people of that day wanted immediate relief. They wanted an immediate kingdom, but he came to save them for so much more. While they only had a temporal perspective, his was eternal. My question today is how many of us have been caught in the temporal perspective when God desires his church to be awakened to the eternal. This morning, our eyes have been opened to that which we are not in control of. While we were asleep and awakened in fear, just like our lost neighbors, he was never asleep. In fact, he's put those directly in front of us in a haze with lots of questions. The question is, will his people out of worship, because they love him, love them like he did. And selflessly serve them. Not repaying evil for evil, but repaying evil for good. And taking the very opportunity that's been created for us that we might advance the gospel and welcome them into eternity as well. If the Lord is for us, then who can be against us? There's a passage that I have to go back to quite a bit. It's a quote from one of my favorite authors. I've mentioned him before. His name is Mark Buchanan. In reflecting on this and other passages, he said this. I, I want to remind you again. There's a repetition throughout the entire Old Testament. Infidelity, slavery, provision of God. Infidelity, slavery. Repeated. People of Israel. 
provision of God, miraculously complaint. Maybe it's even become our pattern. Provision of God, complaint. Provision of God, complaint. Self-reliant, only focused on that which is directly in front of us. He said this. From Exodus to the time of Jesus to us now, those in bondage, whether it be to the Egyptians, to Roman rule, or to those who are, are in spiritual bondage and spiritual darkness, says the opposite of a slave is not a free man. The opposite of a slave is not a free man. The opposite of a slave is a worshiper. The one who is most free is the one who turns the work of his hands into sacrament and into offering. Because he understands that all that he makes and that all that he does are gifts from God, through God, and back to God. How many of you are thankful for your breath? How many of you that breath is being used for worship unto the one true God? That those who walk around today, both next door to you, across the street from you, are in spiritual darkness. I've had so many stories this week, so many opportunities to hear of hope and of joy. I want to tell you about one other. Actually, i got time. I want to tell you two other. So here it is. We were moving. Um, we had really, like, Paul Murray was, like, a genius this week, man. As Scott and I's phone are going off and we're trying to organize people, he had the, the know-with-all to say, man, we need to reserve a truck or some trucks. We need to reserve some storage units. We need to see if we can move some of these people out of their rubble and just store their stuff for them. He's, he's right here in this room. I just saw him. There he is. Man. That's the church being the church. Snapping to when, when we have responsibility, he was able to organize in ways that we didn't have time to and couldn't. So as I followed his lead and we went to this house, the first man that we got to move, someone in his 70s, 80s, his name was Mike. They lost a lot, but they still had some stuff in there, and, and, and so they wanted us to put it in storage for him. So we moved it on the truck, moved it to storage, and as we're driving there, Paul had already had a conversation with him. I didn't know. He said, hey, did you get the chance to talk to this guy yet? I said, I haven't. He said, man, Justin, this guy's been battling carcinoma for three years. He's been battling cancer for three years. So we got to the storage unit, and we put it in, and he said, hey, can you just can you pray with me? I said, I'd be honored to pray with you. I'd be honored to pray with you. And I just felt... Like the Lord moved on me to pray for him, to also pray for healing. And so I, I prayed for healing for him in that moment. And I heard him begin to cry. And I gave him a hug and I said, look, it's okay. I mean, we're all trying to deal with this. It's okay. You don't have answers right now. We're trying to figure it out. He goes, no, 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 no. <laughs> you just prayed for healing. I've been battling cancer now for three years. Three years ago, I was told I wasn't even supposed to be here right now. And I said, Mike... I can say one thing that I'm incredibly certain of. You just survived an F3 tornado at your age. You are supposed to be here, buddy. Not only are you alive and you're walking through cancer, you are here right now. And God desires to use you, to know you, and there's breath in you that you would use that for his glory and not your own, that you would worship him. He said, Amen. 
I got to talk to another girl that I, I, I actually know personally. Her husband's a drummer. He was in East Nashville playing the night that this all happened. She was at home with her two-year-old in her house, two streets from DCA, by herself. She heard the storm coming, and then, you know, right mind, grabbed her two-year-old, st- stood in the tub, sat there. With all the noise, the two-year-old's freaking out, rightfully so. She thought to herself, this might be it. She began to pray. God, let it flip over our house. Let it flip over our house. Just let it pass over. As she's praying, she heard a massive crash, and, and what she couldn't know at that time, in the dark, all she understood was her entire back windows blew out, and the windows in the very room she was in blew out with her. She's thinking this might be it. The next morning, as we walked up on her house, the tree from next door had been uprooted and fallen in front of her house, knocking over the tree directly in front of their house, and it was holding something completely upright. What was standing completely upright and barricaded from the house and the bathroom that she was seated in was a stadium pole from DCA that had been picked up by the tornado and dropped on the back of her house. What what she heard was that thing crashing against their back patio deck and leaving a massive hole, hitting the middle of their house, cutting the roof line, and literally flipping over their house. And the barricade was the tree keeping it from hitting the bathroom. I said, you prayed what? God, let it flip over our house. This thing literally flipped over your house. I'm going to say this in a real and in ways that we can't foresee in the big picture, but even in the small and practical and really important independent ways like my friend's prayer right there. God, let it flip over my house. God loves us. He loves these people. And we, the church, need to be awake to the practical and the spiritual. Hello? We need to stop living and walking around asleep. We need to recognize that God is at work and he has listed us because we right now, till Jesus comes again, are his plan. And the people becoming are in this room and in Mount Juliet and the church as, as a whole, the big C, we get to unite and we get to walk into this place meeting physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual needs right now because we have answers for people that are in a haze. If we'll have his perspective on the matter, be resolute in his plan, and we'll love as Jesus practiced, we might offer people who are darkened and in bondage hope. That's why you're here. That's why breath is in you. And we have to turn our hand to the plow, and we have to get to work. Hello? Because the opposite, the opposite of a slave is not a freed man. It's a worshiper. It's you. It's me. It's the church of Jesus praising God and not complaining. It's singing the praises of God who has done more than just kept our houses upright or given us breath. He pulled us out of darkness like he wants to pull them out of darkness. So let's worship in everything we do. Let's worship. As you get in there this week, 
How many of you have been helping in relief aid right now? Relief. Go ahead and stand up. Go ahead and stand up. You've already been on, on the ground helping. Amen. Amen. That's good. That's excellent. There are more of us. There's more opportunity coming. Let's take it. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for loving us. We just ask that we would remember that in all things we're to worship you. That God, we don't need to take a limited perspective on the matter, but God, you came that we might have an eternal perspective on the matter. Whether it be the Exodus, the time of Jesus, the time of 2 Kings 6 where the Assyrians tried to besiege your people, or right now. May we not forget that we are victors. We do not approach life for victory. Because of the work that you did on the cross, we approach life from victory. And anything who, any entity that spiritually in the dark tries to come against us, God, you are already victorious over. You already have them surrounded. We already have more with us than they have with them. Even though we stare at rubble and we stare at ravaged homes and we stare at tragedy and we stare at a people in a, in a spiritual and physical fog that don't have answers and want to know what do we do now. God, you've given them, you've given them your church. May your church be awake to the move of your spirit. May the church be awake to the oversight and plan of the Father. May your church be awake to the power and the name and the presence of Jesus. And I beg God for that presence right now in this room and you would find your church obedient to respond however you call them individually to respond right now. In Jesus' name, amen.